Hey, family. Uh, it's me again, alcoholic addict, problems, Marcia, um, and welcome to the We Gaze and the Old Days Part Two. Part Two, Two. Um, yes, and Part One um, was uh, created out of this this thing up here with my mind here. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody about what it was like when I came out, um, and uh, a few things that happened to me when my mother said people can be gay, but black people can't be gay. I was like, well, what? <laughs> um, and and I came out in the in the time of the the, the butch and femme um, thing that was going on. And my first girlfriend, uh, I, I remember putting on a button up shirt one day, and, and she wouldn't leave the house with me. It was very, uh, it was very, it was very weird, very strange. Um, but you know, you throw the drugs and the alcohol in there because that's all I knew about the gay community was lots of drugs and alcohol and and half naked men running around doing things in glory holes and stuff and you know what I mean and um it wasn't until I actually got involved in the community started you know working with the people with AIDS foundation and and all of that it was uh the AIDS epidemic was going on there was there was a lot happening when I came out and um you know it, it was a while before I, I even thought about anything to do with sobriety um but um all those thoughts got me thinking and I started asking questions. So our, our last panelists, um, Annie, hi, Annie and Campbell and Lila couldn't make it today. Um, it was fascinating listening to them talk about what it was like when they came out. So I figured I'd keep it going. And so, um, so welcome to We Gays in the Old Days part two. We'll have the link for part one. Um, we'll be in the chats at some point. Um, so, um, yeah, so the, uh, um, we're going to remove your ability to uh, unmute and the chat's going to be uh, minimized um, so we can give them our full attention. So um, I've got three speakers for you today. Um, they're just raring to go. And uh, so we've got uh, the grateful Jeb and Arlene and Arthur. And uh, in that order, we're going to hear about what it's like for them. So um, hi, Jeb. Welcome. You're up. Thank you so much for being of service. Let's get you. There we go. Ah, there we go. Okay, I'll try to unmute myself. Okay, my name is Jeb, and I'm a grateful recovered addict alcoholic. And um, I didn't always call myself an addict alcoholic, but I addressed my drinking uh, 40 some years ago uh, as, a, as a major problem. And eventually in AA, I realized that I used a lot of other things to mask my, my feelings and my thoughts, my history and so forth. So what has really been important for me uh, is getting to know myself, getting to be honest with myself, and eventually to be honest with other people. Uh, and thinking about the, talking about this subject of coming out, uh, I've, I had some struggles. Well, how much do I tell you? I, I will have to say that I don't know why I'm gay. I just know that I am. I, 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 it, over the years, I've recovered a lot of repressed memories, and including uh, the uh, serial uh, uh, um, betrayal and sexual assault uh, as, as a, in my formative years and as a child. Um, uh, first of all, by an uncle who moved into my bedroom when I was uh, oh, probably about six or seven years old. Then the scoutmaster, 
then a music teacher, and then a, a, a priest. Um, and also in my teen years, I got involved with a man who was 10 years older than I was, and I was confident I was in love. All this time, though, I had no, I didn't have a specific identity of being gay. I barely knew, I learned that word later, uh, but I, I knew that I had been attracted to, to men uh, for many years. I had no idea that it had anything to do with sex because that, that was before uh, uh, those hormones started developing in, in, in my system. Uh, as far as coming out, I, I, I really didn't come out until um, I was in the Navy and uh, my boyfriend at that time got caught having sex with someone else on the, the, the deck of a, 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 a destroyer es, um, escort. And um, they got arrested and then he turned me in. This was a time in the Navy in the, in the 50s uh, when they, it was the witch hunts. They were always looking for people uh, to, to throw them out. And I eventually got, was discharged with a label on my DD, uh, D214 of, uh, well, an undesirable discharge. And uh, the reason was homosexual. And uh, that was a humiliating thing that I went through. I went through an interrogation by the CID, which is the equivalent of the CIA. And uh, they uncovered the fact that I had had some relations with men uh, when I was a minor. And because of that, I had lied on my uh, induction um, and, or my, my whatever it was. And um, so I, you know, and I was discharged after a couple of years of service. Uh, and I, I then came, had to come out with my family. And uh, that was not really well received by my father. Uh, but um, eventually, I will say that they began to accept me the way I am, the way I was. Um, my, my work uh, in, after, after college was, uh, was in New York. And I, um, fortunately, the, the staff of the company I worked for uh, and knew everything. They were very open about things, so I was able to be open with them. Uh, later on, I ended up working for churches as, as an organist and choir director. And in those situations, I had to be um, in the closet. And that was a little bit difficult. Uh, as, as I got to know individuals better, I, uh, these they figured out, or I was able to, to be honest with them about my, uh, my same-sex attraction and relationships. Uh, I had no idea about any of these things that I've mentioned about the early betrayals until, uh, really until I, I came into AA. I sobered up in, in uh, August 26, 1978. Uh, and that's when I began to realize uh, that, uh, that I was medicating uh, a lot of memories and feelings. 
But it wasn't until I came to AA that I, I heard them say at my first AA meeting, uh, let us love you until you can love yourself. I had no idea what that meant. Uh, and so I, uh, I just had to stick around and let them accept me, most of them, the way that I was. Um, I did get involved with, with, with someone else who came into the program later. And then it was pretty obvious to everyone that I, uh, I was dating him or we were living together and so forth. And, and I, pretty universally in AA, and this was in Montana, uh, people just accepted that I am who I am. And that's all that I am. And that, that was very good. Um, uh, I was not at that time working for, for churches and so forth. So I didn't have to fear being uh, fired or whatever they would have done to me. Um, later on, um, I will say, um, I moved again and, and, and I went back to school and I got a second master's degree in guidance and counseling and became a therapist. And that was a, that was a wonderful experience uh, in Washington state. Um, and I was, I found acceptance, I found acceptance in, um, in the AA meetings. I didn't talk about my, my, my sexuality in meetings. That just wasn't an issue. But at the same time, I, um, I didn't try to hide it, except that I was also employed at that time by the, uh, the Catholic Cathedral in Spokane, Washington. And there it was essential that I stay in the closet because of the things that were going on uh, with, with the church and, uh, and the abuse issues. Um, uh, we did start a, a, a LGBTQ whatever meeting in Spokane that was was very uh, was very supportive and helpful. Uh, I uh, uh, found as I got to know myself better through the continuing use of that fourth step, I, I, I become more open and honest about who I am and what I become and. Um, and what I'm doing with my life. And th this has been so very, very important. Um, backing up a little bit, I, I, my partner, when I was in Montana, committed suicide 37 years ago. And uh, uh, that I took that very hard. Very, it was very difficult for me. However, uh, I was able to talk about it in meetings about how how shattered I was by that loss, and and uh, and and I, I appreciate the fact that there were people supportive in AA uh, wherever I went. Um, but when I began to retire uh, uh, about twenty years ago, I I, I moved to um, finally moved in two thousand five to Colorado, and. Um, you know, I, I, meanwhile, I've, I've been out of the closet as, as far as being a non-believer or an atheist. Uh, that was essential a part of my identity because there was no evidence at all in my life that there was anything imaginary or out there that gave a crap about what was going on in my life or the world. It was totally up to us and what we do for ourselves, what I do for myself. And AA gave me a pattern 
pattern, a model to, to follow along and, and to continue to grow and, and to grow in my own identity of who I am. Today, I'm, I'm a comfortable old man uh, with, uh, well, I, I guess I turned 83 in May and in August, I, I, I hit 44 years of continuous uh, sobriety. Uh, today it's day 16,121 since my last drink of alcohol. But I think it's only like 12,705 days since my last cigarette, because that was one thing that I held on. And I didn't find out until I started retiring that I had spent my whole life self-medicating with something or other that helped me to, to deny what I was feeling, to stuff what I was doing, numb my Myself and so forth. I ended up dealing with other addictions, uh, food addiction, obsess, uh, you know, what was it? Uh, in 2002, that's 20 years ago, I, I weighed 218 pounds. That's 60 pounds more than I weigh right now. And I had to look at the fact, way that I was using food to stuff my feelings. And my feelings, of course, inform a lot of my thoughts and decisions. So, I, you know, I, went, I spent some time in OA dealing with that. I spent time in, in, uh, in Al-Anon and ACOA. Uh, those things have helped me to get to know myself better and to identify with other people's stories. And, uh, you know, I, I honestly say I've had no serious problems with rejection because of my sexuality. The only problems that I had early on was that I had embarrassment about being different from anybody else. And so I, 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 I wouldn't lie about it if someone asked me. I had an employer when I was in, in Montana who made a comment. He says, I don't, I don't know what your, your, um, your sexuality is. And I actually to respond, I said, well, uh, maybe that's something that we, we don't need to talk about. And in other words, I didn't give him the satisfaction of yes or no, and it didn't affect my 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 job there. And th that has been good. And I've had good support and, and acceptance from my family all along after the initial surprise to everyone that I uh, I wasn't um, I wasn't heterosexual. Uh, early on, I thought, you know, maybe I'm bisexual and I, I had some wonderful wonderful uh, uh, girlfriends in my in my early years uh, and I finally made a decision that I could not be faithful to to one in particular and was and I needed to be honest and uh, interestingly enough she's still one of my best friends and uh, she went on to marry someone else and have several children uh, and they all have names that begin with J, which was the way we talked about when we went to, uh, uh, we took a class at the University of Montana on marriage and courtship or courtship and marriage. And everyone was convinced that someday Joanna and I would marry, but that wasn't to be. And uh, that, you know, that's good. But I think one of the most wonderful things about AA is it's helped me to learn to accept myself, to love myself unconditionally, warts and all, something that I didn't uh, 
I didn't know I could do, but I had to get to know myself first of all. And, uh, uh, and there's not, I'm not perfect in any way, but I've, I was told that practice makes pro uh, progress, not perfection. And I learned how to practice the 12 steps of a Alcoholics Anonymous in my daily life so that I can have the, the promised, uh, uh, well, serenity and uh, and and peace of mind and maybe share some of that with other people uh, I'm still an avid reader I probably I probably uh, use reading as an escape from the moment in times too but that seems to be a, a, a healthy way of dealing with my 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 problems with focus uh, one of the things that we finally, identified when I was retiring is that I've always suffered from ADHD uh, and I, I still have problems with focus. Uh, and, and that is one of the things that makes diff life difficult for me and, and for some of the people in my family. But I, I do have people that, that point out that, you know, mom always said, my sister said to me the other day, mom always said, the problem with Jim is he just can't focus. And that's just why I, uh, I have to continue to, to use the process of the steps to stay grounded in, in the day. I need to do the sort of things that are suggested in the way that Bill wrote about the, the 11th step that I, I have to have a plan for the day. I have to think I had the, the 24 hours ahead and consider my plans and write them down. When I have that, I get a lot done. I feel good about myself and I, 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 don't have the problems that end up when I don't have a plan. And one of the things that I did here in early in AA was that all successful men and women have a plan. And I have a, I have a plan that says I have five minutes. Uh, <laughs> uh, that, that all successful men and women have a plan. I get a plan that comes out of my fourth step, the continuing force that practices the fourth step. I never use that expression, work the steps, because that always ends up in being past, uh, past tense. Uh, you know, Bill said that we need to practice all 12 steps on a daily basis so that we and those around us may find emotional sobriety. And so I, I try to do that. The fourth step gives me a, 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 a sane and sound ideal for my future relationships, not just romantic relationships, but the kind of person that I want to see when I look in the mirror and, and the, the kind of person that I want other people to experience when I'm in the room. Uh, and then the daily plan, which is essential. The days that I don't do that are days when I'm scattered. I don't accomplish a great deal. But I need that little tool to focus my attention and my work for the day. So that, that's important. Uh, one thing that I think has been essential to me throughout my recovery has been the two sides of sponsorship. Having sponsors who would uh, hold me accountable for, for doing for myself what only I can do for myself. And also um, uh, uh, 
I, I try to hold others accountable. And, you know, the whole pattern of Bill Wilson was to share his experience, strength, and hope so that maybe others could do the same sort of thing and keep things going. And that's why we still have um, AA these 80-some years um, down the line. Uh, I treasure each moment that I have in connection with other people. And I'm, I'm sort of a broken record because I only have my story. I, I try not to talk about other people's stories. And that's something that my sponsor in Montana said. He said, Jim, you need to quit hiding behind the big book. You need to tell exactly, precisely how it works for you. What is it that I'm doing today to keep myself uh, on the right side of the grass and uh, moderately sane? And, and happy, joyous, and free. And so um, I don't know any place in my life where I am not out and honest. I knew that I had to stop lying to myself a long time ago and uh, really decided that if I ever drank again, it would be simply because I decided to start lying to myself again, that I could handle it. I could have one drink or one drug. I could do things that uh, uh, other people, I won't say normal people, because sometimes I think normal is, is not very healthy. Uh, but uh, d doing the healthy things is important for me being honest, first of all, with myself and then with people like you. And this is probably more I've said about the sexuality issue in a lot of meetings. Uh, but uh, thank you again, Marcia, for asking me, inviting me to share today. And uh, you're just wonderful. I just adore you. You're just, and that's one of the great things is I've come to love so many wonderful men and women over the last two and a half years on Zoom. Because it's remarkable talent, remarkable convictions, and remarkable service. So there's one of my other buddies, Mikey, there in in Orlando. That certainly, I just I I recommend to everyone check out the Oh My God meetings on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday online. Those are the greatest productions. They are the most, it's the most welcoming meeting that I know. And I think really one of the most encouraging meetings I've ever been to in AA, where we do seem to love one another and support one another in beautiful ways, just like Tasnua does, but more so like, uh, well, just don't, uh, just don't miss, oh my God, that's Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 7 p.m., Eastern time. And thanks again. I love you all. Thanks, Jeb. Arlene. Hi. <clears throat> Arlene, alcoholic. I can stop drinking. I can't stop thinking. And thinking leads me to feelings. And that's a big part of my drinking was feelings. I am a gay alcoholic. I had my first girlfriend when I was 10 years old and soon after her mother caught us I had my second girlfriend <laughs> so I considered myself bisexual for most of my drinking years I um, I had nine children by the time I was 27 trying to prove I wasn't gay somehow having kids 
proved you weren't gay, I guess, in my head. That's where my thinking took me. And um, my sobriety date is May 9th, 1969, a number I can remember for some reason. Anyway, uh, I'm here mostly to talk about history, so I want to uh, remember that when I'm sharing. Uh, I went to my first AA meeting in Houston, Texas, and um, I was in and out of AA for two years. When I got to San Diego and I started going to meetings and I went back out a couple times, and when I came back the third time, Jimmy Burwell was in my home group. And since I go to mostly secular meetings, for those that don't know, Jimmy was one of the two men that insisted on God as we understand him. And he actually saved me by one night suggesting I look up the word God in my dictionary. And um, that changed the way I saw him. AA for many years. Um, I, you know, it's about history, but I want to share that I've shared at South Bay Pioneers, a halfway house for men here in San Diego, three times over the years. And they record all the speakers except me. I'm the only speaker they don't record. And you can go on South Bay's uh, website and listen to the other speakers, but you won't find mine there because, and I do believe it's because I'm gay. Because when I started going to that meeting with my partner, we sat together in the back. We, they had dinner. We went and had dinner there. and. Um, and I think that that's part of it, probably because I do uh, say that I don't believe in God. I don't pray. I don't meditate and I don't chant. So whenever those things happen in an AA meeting, I put up my asshole merit badge because I am an asshole. I may be sober for 53 years, but the first thing says admitting you're an asshole is the first step but for me it stands for alcoholics sharing sober helpful odd life experiences that's what I come to the meetings for to hear those odd life experiences so when I have one I know I can have one and not drink Part of the history of the gay meetings in San Diego is in our book on the history of meetings in San Diego. And I don't know if other areas include their history of A's coming to meetings, but what happened for us in San Diego is that in uh, 1977, I think it was, we went to our local business meeting, five of us from the only gay meeting in San Diego at the time. And uh, I guess I had about 10 years of sobriety at the time, uh, 
not quite 77. And um, we had tried to get in the schedule as a gay meeting before and they hadn't allowed us. And during that meeting, they weren't going to allow us again, the business committee, committee as a whole, until one man spoke up and he is a man with the longest sobriety in that particular meeting. I think it was about 35 years, something like that at the time. And he shared this story about his son telling him he was gay. And in those days, nobody admitted that they had a gay family member. And this man was sharing this at a business committee. And he said, I, I chose to ignore my son and not validate what he had told me. And two weeks later, I came home and he had hung himself. And he said, if my son had a, had a place to go, he might still be alive. And that changed the vote. And we got in the first uh, schedule of gay AA meetings in San Diego. And I think it was 1979. I reread it, but believe me, I can't always remember what I read or think even. So when I was two years sober, uh, I uh, was dating a woman and uh, we decided to go to Yosemite to work. And while I was in Yosemite, I would drive down to Merced or Fresno on my two days off and, and get meetings. And um, something happened between us. And anyway, she ended up stabbing me 22 times because she was having an affair with somebody else. And I don't know how that has to do with gay history other than mine personally. Uh, <clears throat> I came back to San Diego and I was at the central office and a man came in and asked me to lunch. And um, my, I said, no, thank you. And my sponsor who worked there at central office at the time drug me in the back and said, this is the wealthiest man in San Diego. You need to go to lunch with him. And I said, well, you know me. If I go to lunch, I go to bed. So uh, I did go to lunch with him. And we uh, he took me home. And he lived on his yacht at the time. And uh, that was the last man I was with. I... Uh, <clears throat> When, there, oh, I know why I talked about Yosemite is because when I was in Yosemite, I went to Sacramento. My folks lived in Sacramento and I had not come out to them as bi. So I, I came out to my, uh, my dad and my stepmother as uh, gay because I was living with this woman at the time. My mother said, oh, that's fine. Men are bastards anyway. And my mother and, and dad were in the same room. And my dad said, I don't care if you're gay. When are you going to get away from the stigma of that AA meeting you go to? Because whenever I visit him, I always went to AA meetings. So that was my coming out uh, to family members. But I was written out of the will 
at that point too. I everybody when my my uh, my dad died first. When my mother died, uh, my sister and my stepbrother got all the money from the family. At that point, I never got any. Uh, in San Diego, we got in the first. We were listed the first time in 1979, and um, I, 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 uh, my sponsor suggested I uh, do something besides AA. And so I volunteered at National Council on Alcoholism. And my first day there, a gay guy I knew from, um, I occasionally went to the gay church because it was one of the few places you could go without drinking and be around other gays. And I knew him from church. Anyway, he came up to me uh, and told me that the National Council on Alcoholism was getting from eight to 14 calls a week from people looking for gay support for uh, addicts and alcoholics and suggested that we might get together a group and either start a halfway house or a club or something so there would be something specifically for gay alcoholics. So I got together with a few friends and I called a few people I knew and I wasn't really good at that sort of thing. So I called people I knew were, were into getting things like that going. And um, they, uh, they, uh, that was the beginning of Stepping Stones, which still is going today. A few years later, we, uh, we had a gal move down here from uh, Los Angeles, and she got together people to start the Gay Alano Club and uh, Live and Let Live Alano Club, and I got the date written down, but I can't see my own writing because I wrote so small so I could get all this information in for you. But anyway, uh, they did get together and start the Gay Alano Club. I believe it was in uh, 1980 that it started, and it's moved a couple times, but it's... Uh, it's just now had several gay people, especially in men. The men seem to have better jobs and better money, but they left money for uh, the Gay Alano Club here in our area. And that's kept it supported over the years. But over the years, less people are going, less people are supporting it. And it's in the process of closing down but it was open every single day from 1980. And it's still open today, I believe. I think they're closing sometime next month. Um, I haven't been that involved with it. Um, over the years, uh, especially with uh, when the AIDS uh, epidemic came out. Um, I had already been giving marbles away. I gave marbles away because my sponsor 
had told me I had to talk to somebody every day and I didn't like talking to people. I, I, I'm a loner basically, but I found a marble on my way to a meeting. And so I went up to a newcomer at the meeting and I handed him the marble and I said, there'll be days when you think you've lost all your marbles. Remember you have this one. If you ever decide to drink or use again, throw it away with the rest of your marbles. And that became a thing. And then people started giving me marbles to give away. And so I've been giving away marbles for 40 some years. And every once in a while, I'll run into somebody at a meeting that'll tell me they still have their marbles that it's home somewhere. And during the AIDS epidemic, uh, when we had a lot of guys that weren't making it, one of the guys I'd given a marble to was in the hospital and several of us had gone up to visit him. And they basically told us he wasn't going to make it through the night. But I decided to go up the next day by myself and check on him. And when I got there, a nurse came out and she asked me if my name was Arlene. And I said, yes. And she and uh, she said, well, you can't go in right now because he won't let us do anything with him until we find his marble. He fell asleep and his marble fell off his bed and we can't find it. And he just won't let us touch him until he has that marble in his hand. So also my son, um, my son got AIDS. My son was with a man. He was with a man for 25 years in St. Louis, or not St. Louis, um, uh, well, in Louisiana, Pineville, I think, was where they lived. And um, they he he had been in and out of the hospital several times and and he finally found a female doctor that would work with him that wasn't afraid of him and he was on in icu the last three months of his life and i went back to visit him but um his partner never got AIDS. They were together 25 years and his partner never got AIDS and he just recently died. He had heart trouble and he was 10 years older than my son. But my son passed away when he is 44 years old. And when he passed away, I went straight to a meeting. He was <clears throat> one of the people on my gratitude list. I always write a gratitude list. I start with my sobriety. I got it. Uh I start with my sobriety because without my sobriety, anything else I put on that list, I'm going to lose. And um, I had had a, a very good relationship with my son for most of his life. And uh, I also was with my partner for 38 years. I met her on her first day of sobriety. I moved in with her on her third day of sobriety, and I uh, had to get an apartment when she, she was a Navy nurse, and when she retired, she started collecting cats, 
And when she got up to 18 cats in the house is when we figured out I'm allergic to pussy. So if you're here and you think you have an issue coming into sobriety, believe me, a lesbian allergic to pussy has issues. So I will get to the other thing that uh, when I was 15 years sober, we we had the Gay Alana Club and we had dances there on a regular basis. And uh, the women were complaining to me that when they had these dances at the club, the men, it would get hot in the building and the men would take their shirts off. And the women said, we can't take our shirts off like the men and they were pissed. So I decided that I would go to the dance, the Halloween dance, as a matter of fact, and come without a shirt on. So they, if they wanted to take their shirts off, they could take their shirts off. Anyway, I do have a picture. And this is the picture of me and all the other guys because I was also into just about anything a gay person could get into. Those are tick clips. Oh, <laughs> that's me 15 years sober with, I sponsored three of those guys behind me. And they had been told they couldn't belong to a motorcycle group and stay sober. And I said, you can belong to anything you want and stay sober. I don't tell people how to live their program. I don't tell people how to stay sober. I tell them how I stay sober. And I also, when I do sponsor people, one of the books that Dr. Bob read was The Greatest Thing in the World by Henry Drummond, and it's online. But one of the things he says in that group is that you don't help a man become a better man by telling him what's wrong with him. And so whenever I work with anybody, if I'm sponsoring or just a friend, I remind them of the things I know about them that are positive, that are good, the things they've done that have helped them stay sober. Uh, I don't work the steps. I never heard the word work the steps until the hospitals and institutions came out. I lived the steps to the best of my ability, but I worked most of the steps. This is my 12 and 12, and I stole it when it was new, so I have used it, but I had to change the words for them to work for me. The power I found greater than me is, was, and is sobriety. Sobriety changed the way I lived. It changed the way I think. And it didn't change me being an asshole. So I am still an asshole. And I come to meetings to hear other assholes share their odd life experiences. Thank you. Thank you so much, Arlene. Arthur. Hello. Hi, Arlene. Wow, thank you. I have no photos, you guys. Sorry about that. 
Um, I'm Arthur. I'm an alcoholic. I'm also a drug addict. But for me, just saying alcoholic covers everything. When I got sober, I got sober in 1980. It really was not okay to say that you were a drug addict in the meetings that I was going to. So alcoholic just had to cover everything for me. And um, I got sober when I was 20. Um, so you know, 62, that's where I'm at now. So you've got all the dates. And um, about being gay, I don't know when I knew that I was gay, but I knew that I loved to watch that TV show, Wild Wild West. And I think the actor was um, Robert Connor in it, really handsome man. And um, so I love that show. So something must have been going on back then. And um, uh, I pretty much was a teenage alcoholic, drank, you know, from probably 14 on. I had a I had a crazy family and, you know, crazy in the way that you go to jail, that kind of crazy. And my parents really didn't pay much attention to the kids. There were five of us. As long as we didn't create a problem, we could pretty much get away with anything. Get home by dinner time and don't create a problem. So I would, after school, I'd go downtown to the bars downtown and I drink in this gay bar and I was probably 14 then. And um, they said, uh, you can come in the bar, no problem. Just don't leave your school books on the counter. They used to take my school books and put them behind the counter for me. And I'd, I'd uh, you know, I'd get cocktails bought for me because I was tall, handsome and young and, and I had manners. And, um, you know, so that's how it was. And, and also that was in Florida. And also when I lived in California, I would hitchhike from uh, La Crescenta to Hollywood and I'd go to these clubs that were like underage gay clubs and there wouldn't be alcohol there. So there was lots of drugs and lots of marijuana. And um, my parents either didn't know about it or didn't care about it. So that's kind of where I grew up. And um, I became an emancipated minor. Um, in Florida and, and moved out and I had a job and I finished uh, high school and I had, you know, and I went to bars every night and drank. And, um, uh, you know, for me being gay in California was a whole different thing. People were, you know, relatively open. I say that relatively open compared to the South in Florida. It was like, not not so good and and we did my family did a geographic so we we moved from california to this town in florida that had one stoplight in it and it was devastating for me as a 13 year old kid and then we moved to a larger city um in tampa florida and that's where there were gay bars and, and other things but you know as a kid you really shouldn't be going to bars you should be drinking at home that's that's how it was and uh, you know at at home um my parents were divorced on my father's side they were kind of like a wine drinking uh family that had you know wine bottles and paper bags and you got to decide what was a good wine and what was a bad wine and movie stars lived on on their street and then in my mom's house um it was just really not good. And it was usually that last house on the street with the unmowed yard and the lights were not always on. So you just wouldn't invite your friends over. And, um, you know, that's how I grew up. And I thought that that was normal. And um, what happened was in 1980, I did a geographic. By that point, I'd been fired from a job that I'd had four years. I got it back, but I got fired from a job. 
almost didn't uh, pass high school, which was important because it affected the way the family looked. Um, I've gotten a DWI already, um, you know, so, so, so it was already showing up in my life. And the big thing was I couldn't, I had no relationships. I, I just could not relate to people. I walked around looking normal in the world, but I really couldn't relate to people. And um, I did this geographics, went to California and my brother, who's two years older than me, also gay, he was messing around in AA a little. A boyfriend of his was in AA a few years and he was messing around. And he saw what a wreck I was. And he started going to AA right away and he drugged me into AA. And um, the, you know, his pitch for AA for me was, go to AA, Arthur, you'll meet some nice guys. So whatever it takes to get you into this room, it's like, go for it. And the joke was, I was so shy and so, you know, insecure. I, I really couldn't talk to anyone, but um, I was treated very, very nicely. Um, again, because I was good looking, tall and super young. No one called me on my bullshit. And part of that was I went into to meetings for probably the first three months drinking. I had my seven up can. I had vodka in it. I'd drink through the meeting. At the coffee break, I'd go out to my car more vodka in it and go back in and 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 no one called me on it because you know because of those things and finally one day you know my obnoxious brother um boyfriend he was a new yorker and he saw me in a meeting sunday morning nine o'clock at cedar sinai um in west hollywood and he said what in the hell are you doing in a meeting drunk you know it's nine o'clock in the morning on a sunday and that pulled my covers so um the great thing about where I got sober, you know, I got sober, kind of ran West Hollywood, Silver Lake, Beverly Hills. I mean, it, it was like a blessing because I came from this dinner party family and I got dumped into dinner party AA where it was upbeat. There were young people, you know, you'd go dancing in groups, you know, there's house parties. Um, you know, I can remember on the weekends, you would go, you'd get invitations to two or three house parties and you'd have to change clothes in between those parties. So you'd have outfits in your car to change clothes between parties and you'd see the same people at all these parties. It was totally insane. And it was fabulous at that point because I didn't feel like my life was over and um, meetings were pretty open in you know West Hollywood and Beverly Hills, even the mixed meetings, very, very open. And there was a great place in Silver Lake called the AT Center Alcoholics Together. And it was specifically a gay clubhouse. And I would go to a lot of meetings when I got sober. I'd go to a morning meeting to the log cabin in West Hollywood before I went to work. I'd go to work. When I first got sober, I'd go home and I would get in bed because it was the only safe place for me. I'd get up at eight o'clock, get dressed and go to the 8.30 meeting. And after that was over, I'd go to the AT Center and there'd be this evening meeting with gay people and then they'd go out for coffee afterwards. And boy, was that just such a safe cocoon. And I didn't realize until years later that saying change your um, playpen and playmates, that's what happened to me. Because I did this geographics, I wasn't in the same places. I was surrounding myself with sober people. So that's what worked. 
and I had this whole sober environment and it, and it was really good. And um, that, that was in 1980, you know, AIDS started to happen around that time. It was kind of scary. Um, you know, two years in, um, I just woke up one day and I realized my somewhat normal Catholic family, I realized my sister probably had been molested by my stepfather and I checked in and that was true. And it, and it created a huge rift in the family because I said something, I still had a younger brother and sister at home. And, um, uh, you know, that was a big, fast growth moment for me. We take action. I was sober. Fortunately, I, I talked about it in a meeting and, and someone was a counselor and they said, this is how you handle the situation. So, you know, from good fortune, you know, I walked through that uh, with ease. And um, my, my young brother died in my early sobriety, just out of the blue, gone. I walked through that sober. And about in 1985, I went up doing the sober geographics. My, my older brother, who was two years older, who brought me into AA, he was gorgeous. And my, my sister, who's younger than me by 11 months, gorgeous. They're just like model people. And they walk into a room and they light up and they know how to work a room. And I feel like an ugly duckling around them. So I just, I just couldn't find myself even in AA. So I, I moved away and I moved up to San Francisco and it was a safe move because I'd gone up there for a convention. I realized there was AA up there, that there were people there, that you could be out there. And um, um, I did this geographic and uh, kind of changed my whole life super scared, didn't know what I was going to do. Um, it was just bizarre. And, and, you know, coming from a life first in California, where it was pretty neutral, then in Florida, where literally they'd shoot you in the back if they knew you were gay, and then boom, to San Francisco. It was like three lifetimes before I was 30 happened. And um, when I got to AA, they said, do all this stuff, get a God, get in the boat you know, work the steps, I did all those things, just because I, I, I thought I should do them. And my first sponsor, tall, super handsome director, older guy in, in Hollywood, fabulous guy, I was, you know, I, I was sexually attracted to him. So clearly that didn't work. My second sponsor was just a guy in the meetings who was my age, who worked the steps, who worked for a living, and that worked for me. And he took me through my fourth step. The clouds did not open and sunshine poured down on me, but it was something that I felt like I had to do. Um, and the funny thing is I look back now is he was a person who was on TV on a popular TV show that we would all see at that time. And that was just what was going on in those meetings. It was nothing unusual. It's just, that's what was going on in the meetings. I mean, how, how lucky could I be to get sober in that, in that environment? There was a lot of high-end interior designers, lots of actors and things like that in AA at that point. And um, back to San Francisco. So here I am, gay kid in San Francisco, living in the Castro. I told my, my dad when he'd come and visit me, I, I would say, no. He goes, don't you live in the Castro? I'm like, no, I don't live in the Castro. I live in Church Street. It was like two blocks away. And I'd make him take the Church Street exit from the underground and not the Castro Street exit, just because I was nervous. And, you know, he knew he had two gay sons. You know, that, that's life. 
And um, I started my life there. I had boyfriends from AA. Um, you know, I was really fortunate. Again, you know, I like to grab onto a cute guy and keep him for a long time. And um, so, so the AIDS crisis passed me by for no good reason. You know, I, I was out there too, but it passed me by. And um, I, uh, I took this course in City College, Gay Male Relationships. There were two cute guys in that class and I took it with an AA friend of mine. And one of those guys I'm still with 32 years later. So I passed that class. And, um, you know, that's pretty funny because because um, life is funny. Um, so AA in San Francisco, fabulous morning meetings. That's what worked for me. I get up with a ton of energy. Like my ism is, my alcoholism is so powerful. I get up with this extreme power even today, uh, you know, in my 60s. And I, I better direct it in a positive manner or I'm screwed. And that's what morning meetings gave me. It gave me the ability to, to take this energy that I had and put it in the right direction. And um, I started this design firm and a resale staging firm. And I became very, very successful. Um, you know, AA taught me to do what I say and say what I do. It taught me not to gossip. Um, it taught me all these things that I just applied to my business. And I was a trusted person. And people used to go, they would go, you're too young to do this job. And I would just laugh. I would say, oh, I'm much older than you think. And I was 25 years old and I'd be asking for their keys and a contract that said I could do whatever and they'd pay me a ton of money. And I just knew to keep my mouth shut and act as if. So all these things that I learned in AA, I just reapplied to my creative life. And it was amazing. Um, my brother, when I was about 10 years sober, my older brother, he got AIDS and, um, and he passed away. I lost probably 80% of my friends and role models gone from AIDS. So when the COVID pandemic came along and we had to wear masks, I just, I kind of looked at people and I thought, you know what, this is the second pandemic I've lived through. Then we had to put rubbers on to save our lives. Now we have to put masks on. This is, this is life. This is what we do. And, um, it was, it was horrible to see someone that was so close to you um, physically and grew up in the same crazy family and was gay and also was an AA to lose him. That was extremely hard. And all my relatives looked to me for the answer because I was the other gay kid in the family. And my brother and I, we couldn't, couldn't be different and, we, and we're so the same. I mean, he was the peacock and I'm the one who slipped in and out of life getting things done, um, you know, quietly. So, uh, you know, so that happened in my life. Steve and I have been together for, you know, a super long time. Um, it, in, in, uh, in, I think it was about 2017, you know, I woke up one day and Steve had said some really um, odd things to me the evening before that was not the guy that I married. And I thought something's going on here. And I, and I went and I looked at his medications and it had happened once like five years before. And I went into his closet and I took pictures of his medications, which that's kind of unusual. Well, what it was, was he had a really bad back injury. He had back surgery. He was on fentanyl for 
you know, a, a number of years, over a decade. And I finally realized that it was really affecting him and I hadn't paid attention. And the doctor said, hey, you got four to six years with this guy before he's gone because he's on this drug. And, um, and, it, and, and I just looked at my life and I thought, you know, I'm a 30, 30 years sober into this relationship, like 25 plus years. And I'm in a relationship with this drug addict lawyer. This is not where I wanted to be. And, um, uh, you know, and, and, and he's not an addictive person. So I, I sold my design firm so that I could spend time with him because I thought this is the end and I want to pay up. Sorry. I want to pay attention to this part of my life. Um, I consider him my most valuable, well, my most valuable thing that I have in my life. And um, so I sold my business, which meant a lot to me. I mean, it, it gave me so much joy and satisfaction. And, um, you know, the odd thing was we started changing doctors and he wound up getting off of fentanyl and getting onto this medication that we give our dog. And everything changed. So he's not, you know, I have him around for, you know, longer than I expected. Um, life has changed. I, I'm semi-retired now. Um, you know, AA-wise, I found this great um, meeting in San Francisco, morning meeting I went to forever. Whole bunch of straight people totally accepted me. COVID gave me secular AA. Um, in Zoom meetings saved my life. I was getting so unhappy with AA and the big book stopped working for me. It was, when I read the, AA, when I read the big book today, it's, it should be a historical document in my, in my perspective because medically and socially we update things and, and I think that's what we should do. So that's what I have to say about the big book. And every time when someone reads, reads something out of it that I think is absolutely crazy, I try to raise my hand right away and say, in my experience, I don't say this is bullshit, it's out of date 80 years and what the hell are you teaching newcomers? That's not what I say. I say in my experience, and I try to talk about that. And the book that I consider my big book today is Staying Sober Without God. It, what I like about it is I like about the steps in there. It's so clear to me about the action relating to the steps. I have one of those books in every of my cars. Each of my nightstands have it. I have that book so that I can give it away to people because it really works for me. So what I say is whatever works for you along this sobriety road, take it and grab it and keep going with it. Uh, it's my responsibility to, to keep this working for me. And sponsor, I've always had a sponsor. I have a great sponsor. Last 12 years, I trust her with everything I have. That took me a long time to be in a position to trust her because I had parents that didn't take care of us and I didn't trust. Then I learned, oh, I'm not picking those same people in my life. I have a great sponsor that I trust. I use her aggressively. I have sponsees. I really didn't have sponsees. 
agencies till I was about 30 years sober. What I try to do with them, most of them have got, you know, a bunch of time. And all that I do with them is talk them through how to walk through situations. They tell me about a situation that's troubling them. And we sit down together and we say, let's make a sane game plan. So you've got a sane game plan to walk through your life. And, you know, that's the best way I can help people. So I don't drink or use no matter what. I always say that. I plan that every day. Um, and I pretty much go to a meeting every day. Being asked to speak at an elder gay meeting is absolutely funny because when I got here at 20, that was pretty far away from conceptually what I thought would happen here. So that's it. And I wish you guys a sober day. Thanks. Thank you so much, Arthur. And um, wow, I, uh, I, I, I just like to thank um, all three of you. Um, uh, to Arlene and to Jeb and um, to the three that uh, um, stepped up for part one, um, which was Annie and uh, Campbell and Lila. Um, I myself, um, as, as a proud lesbian um, in sobriety, um, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for um, educating me and, and showing me um, that, you know, no matter what, I don't have to drink and I can be proud of who I am and, uh, and uh, be there for those that are still yet to come. So thank you again very much. And um, we'll stop right there.